It's funny, I always like look at people that wear these and often girls have their hair down and I'm like, I would never wear my hair down with these. It always gets caught, like, but I just did that, so. Um, we're just missing one thing, Nath, can you get on the keys? <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, it's fine. <laughs> I won't put people through that. <laughs> sorted okay i'm just quickly going to pray because i need god's help so (laughs) god thank you for um just this opportunity lord it's definitely me stepping out of my comfort zone so i just pray that um yeah i just want to be open to what you have to say and i pray that you just guide my words and um yeah just prepare each and every one of our hearts even mine lord um because i'm ready to hear you and and we all are so thank you for who you are and you are good amen Radio. So today I am, is a people of purpose thing there? Do we have that? Anyway, regardless, you all should know. Um, We are still going through our people of purpose. Is that what it's called? That'd be bad if I got it wrong. Um, People of purpose series. And today I am going to introduce you to Esther. Probably not introduce you. Most of you will probably know her. Um, I was really keen when Nath gave me a lack. Well, he started listing off the people that were left in the series. And I think the second name was Esther. And I was like, done. I've got it. I love Esther. So, um, yes. However, I must admit, coming into this, I was like, yeah, I'm totally going to pull it apart. I'm going to get into the context, the history, all of that stuff, because that's what preachers do. And, like, I'm a sucker for sermons that are, like, really based on the word and, like, pull it apart, blah, blah, blah. And when I sat down and, like, did some Googling, did some reading, blah, 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 and I started reading about, like, the history behind it and all this stuff, I was like, oh, my goodness, what even? I, if you don't know, I suck at geography and, like, history, not, not, my, not my strength. So reading through the stuff, I was like, no. Please God, don't let, don't make me um, pull the context and all the geography and history into it. And thankfully, he was like, "Nah, you can actually leave that." Um, which, again, I was like, "But that's not a real sermon." However, <laughs> I'm just gonna take it and <laughs> be thankful that God's not asking me to tell you where Persia is or whatever. Because I don't know. <laughs> right. So, firstly, um. I am going to just, like, walk you through most of, not most of the story, like, maybe half the story. I think one of the reasons why, when I was younger, I was, like, really loving Esther is because the book is very, like, it could be put in a novel. Um, It's got, like, a really good storyline to it. It's got some climax, got some villains, got some um, heroes, all that jazz. Um, so that's probably why I liked it, but took on a new liking of it going through it this week. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can read along. If not, don't have to do that. Um, so we're going to start at chapter one. And um, I'm not going to like read through all of it, but we'll just start at verse one. Um, so This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. And also, just please give me grace. There's so many names that I'm probably going to pronounce wrong. Um, It was funny. Actually, I had a a 
one of the life groups I went to a couple weeks ago, we were like reading through Philippians and um, I had to read, a, well, I, I got voluntold to read a verse or something in front of everyone and it had Macedonia. Macedonia in it and I read it as Macedonia (laughs) and like everyone I could just yeah (laughs) it was not fun so I'm probably going to do that right now but that's okay um okay so Esther chapter 1 verse 1 this is what happened during the time of Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush at that time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. Then we're going to jump down to verse 5. I kind of highlighted just the king gave another banquet. Um, And then it says this banquet lasted seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So from that like first little bit, um, I guess what I just wanted to like highlight is the king liked banquets. Um, I'm sure I did a bit of reading into like the significance of the banquets, but again, I got lost in it, so I'm not going to try and explain that to you. Um, but we kind of the first bit of chapter one sets us up in like the king is celebrating. He's kind of further on. It says how there were couches of gold and silver. Um, wine was served and by the king's command in verse 8 by the king's command each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished so basically um the king is like well this is my interpretation of it the king is like i've got all this good stuff um everyone will not take advantage everyone enjoy it um i'm gonna show off my gold couches i'm gonna you know show you all my riches and whatever. Um, Then we jump down to, well, not really jump down, verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So from that verse, we can see that the banquets were um, separated by gender. So the king's banquets were clearly for men. Vashti had a banquet for the women. And then in verse 10, on the seventh day when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, um, I'm not going to try and pronounce all all those names. When he was in high spirits from the wine, he asked his seven, how do you pronounce that word? Eunuchs? Eunuchs, right. Basically got his, it kind of describes them as personal assistants, people like that. Um, Basically, he got them to call Queen Vashti um, to come into the presence of the banquet. And so this is like kind of a significant, well, this is a significant kind of starter to the whole story um, because Queen Vashti refuses to come. Um, And this makes the king very, very mad. So in my reading and stuff, a lot of things that came up about Queen Vashti was how she was... She was selfish and she was kind of like, I don't want to do what the king, like in that state, she was like, I don't want to please the king, blah, blah, blah. But in, I guess, Rachel interpretation, I can kind of see like the king was in high spirits and the banquet was probably pretty rowdy as kids these days would call it. Um, That's for the youth. (laughs) And so if I was Queen Vashti, I'd be like, nah, I don't want to go. So I would probably refuse to. Anyway, so her refusal 
mad and angered the king um, to quite extreme points because he then... Okay, so the king's mad because Queen Vashti has refused to come into his presence. Then we go to verse 15. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Um, And then jump down to 17. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. So the issue, kind, the king takes the issue further in that it's not just a refusal to um, the king. Queen Vashti isn't just saying, no, I don't want to be at the banquet. Um, it's actually her refusal kind of tugged at the king's, um, I guess, power and authority in that whenever the king asks for people to come into his presence, he always has the power to bring them and probably never gets told no. Um, and so by Queen Vashti refusing to come into her uh, his banquet, she's not only refusing to him as a person, she's actually showing the people of the uh, Susa that um, it's okay to say no to the king or it's okay to say no to a man. Because we then read, basically, oh yes, yeah, 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 sorry, down to 22. He, the, so the king sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his household using the native tongue. So he's trying to, by getting mad and angry and quite worked up about Queen Vashti's refusal, he's feeling threatened and feeling like the whole, um, well, his authority as king and also the authority and power that men hold in households is being threatened. And therefore, he doesn't want all the women of Susa to think, okay, now I'm going to stand up for myself and I'm going to, you know, be my own person, say no sometimes, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind of the root of why um, he ends up ditching Queen Vashti as a queen, well, basically removes her, um, because he doesn't want that example for Caesar. That was really hard to get out. Okay, so now that we have that and established why he um, extinguished, I don't know the right word, extinguished Queen Vashti as queen. Okay, so then, does that make sense? Okay, good. (laughs) I'm confusing myself, so hopefully you aren't confusing. Then we jump to chapter two, which I also really like that I I feel the subheadings in Esther are really good subheadings. Like, they summarize what's happening really well. Um, So, chapter two, Esther's made queen. So, we hear about Esther. Chapter 2, verse 1. Later, when the king Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And I kind of found it funny. Well, not funny. I found it just the fact that it says, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided. So he actually, he was sitting in an emotion of fury and anger and um, fury and anger. Um, And it wasn't until after that subsided that he then remembered what he'd done to Vashti and what he needed to do. I'll come back to that a bit later. So he's remembered he needs to do something about not having a queen. Then, so he's on the hunt for a queen, basically. Verse 5 in chapter 2 says, Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, 
named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. We're introduced to Esther, and we get to know a little bit about her from this small couple verses. And we hear that basically um, Esther and Mordecai were part of the group of Jews that were exiled, and therefore take on kind of a label of an exiled and rejected Jew. And Esther is also under the label of an orphan because she doesn't have a mother and father, however, has been taken in by Mordecai. So we kind of get that picture of, okay, she's a rejected and exiled Jew. She's an orphan. However, she was beautiful. And again, I'll kind of go into that a bit later. Um, So that's kind of Esther in a nutshell. I'll just paraphrase the next couple of verses. But basically, the king um, searching for a queen sends out, basically um, sends out the message to uh, all the women and specific women are picked to come into what I like to call a beauty pageant. Um, (laughs) Literally, I thought of um, Miss Congeniality. I don't know if any of you watched that, but I was kind of, yeah first time I read this I was like maybe I can compare it to that movie but no um we're not gonna go there (laughs) verse 10 Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her I wanted to just quickly highlight this verse because um for me it kind of highlighted this is kind of a side point but Obviously, Esther is an orphan, and we read how Mordecai has taken her in, basically as his own daughter. So that's the first kind of point that I'm like, okay, Mordecai is a really good guy. He is showing, um, well, he's basically taken in an orphan. Yes, he's related to her, but regardless, he's um, treating her as his own daughter. And then we read about how every day he walks back and forth, checking up on her, um, and yeah, basically making sure she's all right. So I just wanted to highlight how, yeah, that I to me that's a really good picture of Mordecai's persistent fatherly love, I guess, and protection. So Esther's now in this beauty pageant, basically. She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty intense. Like there's a lot of, it even says perfumes and cosmetics, six months of oil and myrrh, um, and she basically, they're all the women that are undergoing these beauty treatments, essentially to put it simply, we are waiting in line for the king to, um, to go to the king and for the king to call them. Um, and as they are being prepared to, uh, walk into the king's presence, essentially, they are told you can have anything you want. Um, so in the tail end of verse 13, we see anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from harem to the king's palace. So all these ladies are like being, well, yeah, the whole like materialistic beautification stuff is just being thrown at all these ladies, which I'm sure they're probably all lapping it up, being able to be made beautiful. And 
being given essentially anything they want to make them feel confident, to make them feel like they're worthy of the king. Um, However, we then read in verse, the second part of verse 15, Esther asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. Um, So she, unlike probably a lot of other women, didn't really, like, take anything. She wasn't one to be like, yeah, give me everything that's going to make me beautiful, everything that's going to make me confident. She was kind of like, I am who I am, whatever you suggest, Haggai, um, I'll go with that. But, yeah, I'm not fast. And so then it says Esther won the favour of everyone who saw her, um, which I think is pretty cool since she didn't really, I mean, take on anything extra to potentially make her beautiful. She won everyone's favour um, with who she was. And so then we jump down to seven, end of 17. Um, she won the king's favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. So, yeah, basically she's chosen to be queen by the king, regardless of her humility and I guess not necessarily massive beauty compared to, well, outward beauty compared to all the other ladies. Um, And then in verse 18, we read, And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So we kind of see how this little section, Esther has been chucked into, like, worldliness of worldliness. Like, beauty, cosmetics, perfumes, all this stuff. Being basically told you can have whatever you want. Um, And then, chosen as queen, she's celebrated with a massive banquet and a holiday is made. So to me, I'm kind of like, wow, that's like literally everything of the world thrown at her. And I think often when people do look at the book of Esther, that's the thing that's kind of highlighted, um, is that, oh, it's so worldly. Like, it's just pointless stuff and worthless stuff that Esther is kind of thrown into. However, she stands firm in who she is, which again I'll get to in a bit. We're just going to try and uh, jump through the next couple of verses. Um, So then chapter 3, I don't really want to delve into much other than reading the subheading, Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. Basically in this chapter we read about um, Haman and he is a royal official and basically people he's getting people to bow down to him at the gate. Mordecai refuses to do this. Um, he doesn't want to bow down to Haman and therefore that kind of sparks a hatred in Haman for Jews. Therefore, Haman begins to plot to kill the Jews. Actually, I skipped a bit. I just realised I skipped the little bit before chapter 3. Mordecai undercovers, undercovers? uncovers a conspiracy. And the only thing I wanted to highlight in that little bit was just that Mordecai uncovered a conspiracy and basically told about the conspiracy was about the king and being in danger. And Mordecai told Esther to tell the king that he was in danger and he should, yeah, watch out. And basically, I just like how Queen Esther goes to the king and tells the king about this conspiracy. However, she gives credit to Mordecai. And I think like going back to all the worldliness and all of her celebration of her being queen and all this stuff, she still chooses to not like 
up herself and say, oh yeah, I'm the one that un uncovered it, she actually still gives credit to Mordecai. So that was the other thing I wanted to say. Um, but then, yes, in chapter 3, Haman's plot to destroy the Jews. So because Mordecai doesn't bow down to Haman, Haman then gets really mad. He's like, I'm not just mad at you. I want to kill you and not only you but all your people. And so he, Haman then goes to the king and shares with the king about how horrible these Jews are, refusing to bow down and whatever. Not whatever. It's good stuff. That was just a whatsoever. <laughs> um, uh, and then, so basically the king is, oh, actually, Haman brings money to the king as well. He's like, I'm ready to give you money to get rid of these Jews. However, the king is kind of like, I don't even want your money. Just make the decree, whatever. I'll give my sign of approval, my stamp. And so... Then um, an edict was issued that the Jews would be um, gotten rid of at a certain date. Um, so that's chapter 3. And then chapter 4, just the last bit I want to quickly touch on. So in chapter 4, the subheading, Mordecai persuades Esther to help, which I think is quite uh, summative of the passage. But... Basically, Mordecai learns of all that happens. He's distraught. He, yeah, tears his clothes, puts on sack, sackcloth and ashes, um, and basically is like, the only solution is to go to Esther, tell Esther what's going on, and basically persuade her to speak up to the king. Um, and at this point, the king still doesn't know that Esther's a Jew, so he just made an edict that's basically going to wipe out his queen again. Um, he's going to have to go on a search again. So yes, so Mordecai comes to Esther. And um, actually there might be a verse that I... Yes, so Mordecai basically asks or tells Esther of what's happening and is like, you're the only one that can do anything about this. You need to speak up. In verse 9 of chapter 4, I'm just going to read that. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai. So this is after Mordecai had told Esther of what's going on. This is Esther's response. All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or any woman who approaches the king in, an, in the inner court without being summoned, the, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the royal scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So in this little chunk of verses we kind of see Esther's like kind of scan of reality she's like but Mordecai like I'm literally gonna die if I walk into the king's presence without being asked and the fact that I guess we see she she's a bit uncertain and fearful because it's been 30 days since she was last called to uh, go to the king um and then we read verse 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time as this. So here we see um, Mordecai's we see his faith here because he's basically saying, if it's not you, deliverance is going to come from someplace else. So regardless of like him not necessarily saying God's going to deliver us, 
um, he is putting faith in the fact that the Jews will be delivered, regardless of whether it's Esther or not. However, um, he says that Esther and her father's family will perish if she does not speak up. And with that, Esther then replies, verse 16, Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I will perish. So obviously Esther's gotten to a point where she, she's okay. Well, she's not okay. She's probably freaking out. I'd be freaking out. But she's accepting and she's going to take this step of faith. However, she asks the rest of the Jews to fast for her and to stand um, basically for her in God. So she, she does a really good job of, I guess, in our terms, coming to our family in Christ to support us and stand with us in prayer. And so, yeah, with that, she says, if I perish, I perish. So she's kind of like, all or nothing, I'm going to do this. And whatever God does, he does. So um, that's kind of all I want to go into in detail. Basically, if you don't know, she ends up going to the king. Um, The king accepts her coming into his presence without her being called um, and asks what he can do for her. She then says, I want to have a banquet with you. Funny, another banquet. Uh, Basically have dinner with them in our terms. And then at the banquet, the king asks, what can I do for you? She says, I want to take you to another banquet tomorrow night. Um, And then it's the next banquet that she asks, or basically tells the king what what his edict, edict is basically saying, that she's a Jew and that she wants her people to be saved basically um and in the end we see the jews do they are delivered and they're saved um and there's a whole lot of other stuff like to do with haman and what happens to mordecai blah blah blah. but that's kind of the the chunk of the stuff that i went through is kind of what i want to focus on this morning okay so yeah in spending some time with god this week not some time i feel like i spent a lot of time reading this um trying to pull out stuff I guess there was a lot that I feel God gave me Um, however the one consistent thing I kind of felt was a question that God was kind of posing to me and I guess to you guys now Um, and that is what in your life is contributing to or inhibiting your ability to hear know and believe God's purpose and commission for your life And I think focusing on this first part of Esther and her journey to getting to a point of stepping out in faith, literally saying, if I perish, I perish. Like she's going for death, basically. Um, But the journey that she's been on to get there, I think shows us a really good picture of, um, yeah, what what we can be doing um, in ourselves, um, how we can be going about, one, Uh, being completely sold out for God and zoning into what he wants to speak to us but also being completely sold out to his commission and purpose for us so I guess the first thing I kind of wanted to speak into a bit which God kept on saying to me and I was kind of like I don't really yeah I don't know but I'm just gonna go for it I guess the first kind of risk factor I guess you could say or something that gets in the way, an, an inhibitor, um, that gets in the way of us, I guess, hearing and being full tune with God, is distractions. Um, 
And it's funny, this is one of the things God has been challenging me a lot over the past couple of months. Um, it might sound kind of simple to you, but to me it's big. I, if you don't like me, <laughs> get out. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, uh, I hope all of you would stay. Um, if you don't know me, I really like music. I literally will listen to music all the time. And especially going to uni now this year, the train rides. It was funny. Initially, like, getting on the train, I was like, oh, there's so many people. Like, this is such a great place to be able to speak to people, bring God's word to people, like, just have conversations with people. And I was so keen. But, like, you get on a train and everyone's got their earbuds in or ear ear phones in. Um, And so I kind of decided to use my train time for, like, podcasts or music. And so I'd get on the train, chuck my earphones in, blah, 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 all was sweet. Then, like, when I get off the train to go home, get in my car, crank the music up, and, yeah, that was just my way of, I guess, doing trains and cars. Anyway, um, a couple weeks ago, I literally, and it's funny, because I always thought, I guess growing up, you always get told that God speaks to you in different ways, like, it's not necessarily going to be audible, like, words, whatever, and I was, I was cool with that. I've been on a journey in, I guess, figuring out how God does speak to me individually. And it's never been like audible words or anything. And in my head, I was like, if God's going to speak to me audibly, it's going to be something pretty like big. Well, not big, but like it's going to be significant. Anyway, a couple of weeks ago, I got in, actually, no, I think it was, no, yeah, it was in, in the car. I got in the car and I literally heard, turn your radio system off. And I was like, no, what? Really? God? Is that you? And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. But initially I was kind of like, I don't like silence. Like my biggest, even it's funny leading youth with Mel, whenever we're having discussions, um, she's always like, give them silence. Like it stirs like stuff in them. Like they'll get to a point where they're going to speak. But I just have to feel silence. Like, well, I don't have to. I want to feel silence. Anyway, so when God, when I got in in the car and God was like, turn your music off I was like I don't want to do that it's too silent however I did and since then even getting on the train God would be like nope do not put your earphones in I just want to sit with you and talk with you and it has been the best couple weeks I kid you not like now I'll get in the car and be like "Mm, music Mm, don't need that because I yeah I think I found that without even realizing it music for me became a massive distractor and not only a, d- a distraction simply to like keep my mind busy, but it distracted me from moments with God and being able to hear his voice. And so um, if we look, that's kind of a small example of what type of distractions, well, for me personally, what my distraction in the past couple of weeks has been. However, with Esther, we see there are so many distractions. Like I was talking about um, just all the worldliness that's thrown at her, like beautification, Um, There's a lot of pride in wealth and like boasting about what we've got and the fact that you guys can pick anything you want to, um, yeah, whatever. I did go over that. But um, she is thrown into a a world of distractions essentially. And I was kind of, I sat back and I was like, girl, you did a good job of sticking to your, um, who you were and who God said you were and what God wanted you to do. because, yeah, there was beauty, there was pride, and a lot of doubt and fear. I, yeah, I'm an emotional person, and often emotions can be, like, I've been on a journey of figuring out how to healthily 
um, listen to my emotions. However, doubt and fear and insecurity um, that Esther would have felt in that space of being basically, well, knowing that death was going to happen realistically um, without going in the picture. Um, so there was a prob- she was probably feeling like emotions galore, which I do not, yeah, I would not like that at all. Um, however, um, yeah, I think Esther gives us a really good picture of how she did persevere and, and she was essentially in the world but not of the world. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next, I guess, not subheading, but kind of falls under distractions and how in this world we are distracted. We're distracted by it, me, music. We're distracted by money. We're distracted by um, false sense of beauty, false sense of worth, false sense of identi- identity. All this kind of like, you, yeah, I'm sure if all of us named a distraction, we'd be able to not double up because there's so many. Um, uh, so yes, we, I guess I come to a point where I'm saying that we are in a world of distractions. However, God calls us um, to be in the world and not of the world. And so I just want to read John 17. Just want to pull out verse 13 to 16. Um, so John 17 is, as the subheading says, Jesus praying for his disciples, um, basically talking to God before he gets arrested um and he says i'm coming to you god now but i say these things while i'm still in the world so that they may be full no they may have the full measure of my joy within them i've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than i am of the world my prayer is not that you take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one they are not of the world even as i am not even as i am not of it um, so basically he's saying to God, I know what this world's like. I've lived here um, and I know how tough it is. However, I don't want you to take um, your children out of the world. I want you to be with them in it and protect them from the evil one. Um, and then if we flip to Romans 12.2, it's one of my like most highlighted verses. Um, we read, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Um, so in those two passages, I guess we, without going into the context behind, in between all the verses, I guess, um, yeah, we see God's heart is for us to be in this world. Um, because he sent his son down, he knows. He knows what it's like. He knows the challenges. He knows the brokenness and the heartache that we go through from being in this world. However, we can stand in confidence because he is our strength in it and he does, he's fighting for us in it. He's wanting us, wanting to protect us from um, the evil one. And so um, the other last passage I just wanted to flip to um, is Philippians 4, 8, which says, Finally, brothers and sisters, this is Paul speaking, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And I think that in itself, I think it's one of the passages I've kind of flicked to a couple of, not a couple, more than a couple of times in the past couple of weeks because I think for me, 
distractions and being in the world and of, not of the world, our mind is our biggest enemy. Distractions don't necessarily have to be objects or physical things. A lot of the time, it's our mind's thoughts, where our mind goes, what we let ourselves think about. And so I think this morning, as tough it is, as it is for me to say this, because I it's not something I'm good at, and yeah, it's hard, but we have to set our mind on what is right, what is good, what is pure. We're in this world. There's always going to be the enemy's twisted truths um, and things that the enemy wants us to believe, things that the enemy wants us to pursue. But we we can't listen to them. We cannot focus on them because if we are wanting to be sold out on God's commission, on God's calling, on God's identity for us, we have to have our mindset on him. We have to have our mindset on on what he says is true, who he says we are, and and it's tough. It's really tough. However, we have to do it. And that and with that comes surrendering and laying down and stripping ourselves back to a point where we are solely focused and in tune to his his truth and his calling and his identity um, for us. And so I guess that kind of brings me back to um, Esther's identity and what I guess the world is saying about her. The, the world says that she is an exiled and rejected Jew. Um, the world says that she's an orphan. Now, those both these things we would think would strip us of identity, would strip us of a voice. And in this case, Esther's voice does not come from being an orphan. Esther's voice does not come from being exiled and rejected. Um, and another label that's thrown on her is queen. Now, this might not be a bad thing. It might be a good thing because she's glamorized and celebrated. However, that is still not her, her true identity. Qu- being queen does not give her a voice. It's being a child of God. And so I think I know the burden of labels. I know what it feels like to be put in boxes. I know what it feels... And sometimes, sometimes, a lot of the time, it's ourselves that put those labels on us. I know for me, that's my biggest enemy. Like, I create things that people say about me, which has never been said. I create these terms and these labels that weigh me down and take away from the truth that God speaks over me. And it sucks, man. It messes with you. But... Coming back to the one truth that we are a child of God, that is what gives us a voice. And in Esther's circumstance, that is what gave her a voice. She didn't rely on being a queen. Um, She didn't rely on her position. She couldn't rely on being her position because she still was under the power of the king and, and had to be called for to be in his presence and to ask stuff of him essentially like she she couldn't rely on those labels. She had to rely solely on being a child of God. And yeah, I think it's it's tough all the things that the world does put on us. Um yeah, if we I've written if we know where our identity lies, we're able to stand firm in our calling despite the distractions. We're essentially able to be in the world but not of the world. Um so, so this kind of brings me to the last little point, I guess, which is our voice. And, and like I said, our voice comes from being a child of God, um, not of anything else. If we rely on anything else, that voice falters, that voice fails, that voice, yeah, it becomes a broken and, yeah, not a voice of truth and not a voice of uh, 
what God wants to speak. Um, and so I guess reflecting on that, my personal journey, I guess, with this whole idea of a voice, um, back in uh, 2013, we went on a mission trip to Fiji. Um, and so I was 12, 12 at this point. Um, we were sitting in a preschool. <laughs> we are sitting in a preschool um, and the teacher, she was so lovely, um, I think it was at the end of the time she was thanking us for helping out and being there um, and she kind of, I'm kicking myself because I think I lost the journal that I wrote this in so I'm going to try and remember it correctly but she basically, I was kind of like out of it, my 12 year old self was probably distracted and wanting to get out of the heat, blah blah blah. However she was like, I have a word for you and she pointed and I'm pretty sure I was kind of like it's not me let's look at the person behind me so I kind of have a feeling I missed half of it because I was like it doesn't apply to me but then in that moment I was like okay she's pointing at me and she basically said you have a voice you have you carry a part of God's heart that gives you such a strong voice and it's not necessarily going to be a voice that is used to sing. It's not necessarily going to be a voice that's used to lead, but it's a voice that is going to have power. It's a voice that's going to carry God's truth. And it's a voice that that is utterly, truly, completely rooted in God. And um, I actually want to release that over you all today because it's not a word just for me. It's a word for every single one of you, no matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what labels you've categorized yourself or boxed yourself into, what labels the world throws on you, you have a voice and nothing can strip you of that voice. Nothing can take away that voice that God has placed in your heart. And it's, it, it's tough. There's so many things that get away, get in the way of that, um, like we were talking about, oh, there's going to be tears on this now. Um, yeah, distractions, worldliness, it all gets in the way. But if we come back to what God truly says, he says that we have a voice. And there's just a bit of a, I was journaling about this earlier in the year and um, I feel like God kind of wants me to speak this over um, you guys because it's not just for me, um, it's for all of us. Um and this was this was in a in a space where I was kind of refusing to believe that word. It's funny I I can't say I always hold on to that word and remember it, but Mum loves to bring it up because she knows where my weaknesses lie. Um, and like in the places where I'm really struggling, she's like, "Remember what that preschool teacher said?" And then I'm like, "Oh, okay. Oh, thanks." <laughs> um, and so this was in a space where I was, yeah, I the the um line above it says how can a black sheep shine for you and then I felt like God spoke this and I yeah I want you to take this for yourself you are called saved purposed and graced for his appointment and hope does not disappoint fate is not your portion failure is not your end instead let hope be your beacon faith be your compass and purpose be your destination um and that's that's what I want to leave with you today Esther paints the the story of Esther paints such a beautiful picture of how a yeah 
just a daughter of God, well, not just a daughter of God, a daughter of God chooses to stay grounded, chooses to stay um, completely rooted in what God has for her, what God is calling her to do. And she, yeah, she doesn't let anything um, break her down. She doesn't let anything get to her. She is completely sold out for God and, and using her voice to bring him glory through saving her people. And this morning, I think we all have stuff that gets in the way. We all have things that pull us down that seem to to steal from that voice that God has given us. But God has given you each a voice. And it's a voice of power. It's a voice of strength. It's a voice of truth. It's a voice of deliverance. Um, and so, yeah, I think maybe we just come into a time of worship again. And I, I really encourage you to find your place with God. Um, if it means surrendering or laying down distractions, if it means laying down thoughts, laying down things of your mind, um, or whether it, it simply means um, abiding and sitting in him and his presence. Um, I just want you, yeah, I really want you to know the power and the truth and the identity that God has given you and how that shapes your voice. Yeah, so I'm just going to pray. God, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for who you are. God, I thank you that you're God the deliverer. You are God that you reign victorious. And I thank you that even as a king, even as a creator of this world, Lord, you chose us to be your child, to be your sons and daughters, Lord. I really want to pray, God, that in the midst of all the world throws at us, God, that you would be our sole focus that we would be constantly posturing our hearts to hear from you, to dwell and abide in your truth and in the love that you have for us. You are called, saved, purposed and graceful. His appointment and hope does not disappoint. Faye is not your portion, failure is not your end. Instead, let hope be your beacon, faith be your compass, and purpose be your destination.